The first time I saw him, the person I'm going to call Jeff, I was in junior high and it was a track meet and I was getting ready to run. I was very good at track and he stepped onto the running area and I audibly gasped and someone asked, are you okay? And I said, yes, I just got something caught in my throat. He had black wavy hair that I knew smelled like, gee, your hair smells terrific, maybe well of balsam. And his hair on his legs moved with the breeze. I remember thinking to myself, I had taken this strange thing I had started to do, which was pretend I was always in a movie to a certain degree now that was sort of consuming me. I always thought I was a camera, and I would walk around pretending I was a camera in the hallways. It was a way to protect myself from this strange existence of school. So he walked in, and the wavy hair and the wavy legs, the hair on his legs, and and I'll never forget it to this day. He had the pinkest lips. They were just perfect. And I, I remember thinking to myself, how could God make such perfect <laughs> lips? And to this day, I, I can see him as clear as a bell. So, of course, the coach knew I was distracted. And I told him, you know, once again, I caught lint in my hair or my eyes or something. But I couldn't stop staring at this kid. Now, of course, what are we talking about? We're talking, you know, 1978. We're talking small town in, in Washington State. We're talking heretic. We're talking scarlet letter. We're talking this could not be spoken. I know this sounds very Game of Thrones, but this could not be spoken. What I was feeling for, quote-unquote, Jeff, it was pure lust. It was pure desire. And at that age, you know, I had to hide my erection behind everything. Books, I'd have to stand in the supermarket behind the cereal boxes to hide my erection. I mean, the brawny paper towels were horribly, just terrible. Every time I'd look at them, I'd have an erection. And then I used to have to always bring a little cloth with me to wipe up the pre-cum. My mother said, what's wrong with you? And I was like, oh, you know, those water fountains. And it was, you know, brawny. So Jeff and I unfortunately had to do a relay race, which was horrific to me because that meant that I would have to run after Jeff with the fucking thing in my hand, which, of course, I imagined was his penis. And so I I remember at the end of the race, after running after Jeff, the coach said, I've never seen you run so fast after anybody. And I was like, well, you know, we're natural runners, the Bryans. And little did he know that I was running towards my destiny. The year is 1992. Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. It's probably nondescript to you because it's nondescript to everybody. Sounds a little bit like the beginning of a movie. You can kind of see this, the 1992 Oklahoma City and then the pan of nothingness. Well, that's where I lived. When my parents were getting a divorce, my mother was looking for love. She always said that, you know, your father is a wham, bam, thank you type of man. And I, I really, I wish we could have dated. I wish we could have done a lot of things. So I knew my mother was kind of looking in other places. They had both cheated on each other. I'd been witness to both of them. She was a nurse at the local hospital, and she worked with a woman named Karen. I had met Karen as a friend before, but it really was no big deal. And then one day, my mother said she was going out with Karen, and she never came home. Like, Wow, I guess, you know, mom's hanging out with Karen pretty late. My parents recently got a divorce. I moved in with my mother, and I walked into my bedroom, and it was really something like you see in the TV sets where 
they'll move an actual scene into a TV set, and it's kind of unreal, but it's almost familiar. And so I set myself up in the home, and my mother decided to come out of the closet, although I don't know if she really was coming out of the closet. I think she was looking for love. Either way, it really didn't matter to me if she had. But she was living with a woman, and her name was Karen. Now, I called Karen Rat Boy. So if you can imagine what a rat boy would look like, that was Karen. Short, thin, very short hair, very hard-looking, and also mousy at the same time, which I always thought was kind of funny. How do you add those two together? And she would press her jeans. Now, I don't know if anybody knows what it looks like in Oklahoma, but in Oklahoma, sometimes the cowboys will double starch their jeans where you have to put your hand down the pant leg and all you hear is this as you open it up. So this was Karen with her pressed jeans and her combat boots and looking very 18-wheeler. I said hi. She seemed very nice. It's a three-bedroom house. It's far away from my original home. I was still going to the same high school. But things started to turn about a week later. Hi, I'm Michael C. Bryan. And I'm Jennifer Ho. We help people understand the purpose of their pain. We've been through a lot and we've come out the other side. We talk about everything and anything. Especially what other people are afraid to talk about. Life is an invitation to do whatever the fuck you want. And it's definitely time to look at how we're playing the game. We held ourselves back for years. But now we're mostly past all of that shit. Mostly. Welcome, Welcome to, to Stripped. As would happen back then, there were no, and I thank whoever made these shower stalls, no separators in the shower stalls for boys back then. So like in the movie Carrie, who is my mentor, Carrie, I have a figurine at home, which people find strange, but I find it very liberating that she killed everyone at prom. There was no separators in the showers. And so there would be, quote unquote, Jeff. And I would marvel thinking, hmm, reminded me of the Seattle Art Museum when I look at paintings by Monet about how the water lilies would move in the wind and the way the water cascaded over the hair on his ass and... I kept saying, don't look, don't look, don't look. But my God, it was like some beautiful jewel that you couldn't look away from. I feel like Indiana Jones just wanted to grab it and take it home. But I couldn't talk about it. So now, of course, this could not be spoken. And I was tortured, afflicted. I couldn't stop thinking about Jeff. He was perfect. The shiny hair that moved in the breeze that, again, I knew if I could just trip him and fall on him, it would smell just like, gee, your hair smells terrific, which you can still buy, by the way, at a lovely store in Vermont. Polynesian blend, by the way. Perfect chemicals. Dries the fuck out of your hair, but it's great. Whenever I miss Jeff, I get, gee, your hair smells terrific. Little secret story. And it comes in a plastic bottle that is pink, of course. So Jeff consumed me. I couldn't stop thinking about him. Now, of course, the girls were falling over him because he was beautiful. And, you know, he was undeniably heterosexual. I mean, this is the kind of man who catches footballs in a perfect pose and then freezes it in time and you want to make a statue out of the man. This is what he was like. He was affable, kind, sweet, and I, I was obsessed. So I just knew, I just knew there was an appropriate way to let Jeff know about my feelings for him as a young, secret gay boy, you know, in, the, in a time when you just did not 
talk about these things. And I had a whole secret life prior to this. I had been doing secret sexual things my whole childhood, but, you know, save that for another episode. Suffice to say that my desire wasn't new, but the level of it was overwhelming. So I thought, gosh, how do I get this guy to know I like him? So I sat down one night and put on record. You know, at the time it was Grease. I played that album to the point my mother literally wanted to take it and throw it into the garbage can. And so, you know, hopelessly devoted to you, I listened to again and again and again, like any young gay boy would, and wrote a note to him to tell him how much I liked him. And I imagined my finger in the pool, just like Olivia, as he and I sat side by side, ready to save Rydell. So I wrote a note to him, and I knew it was the perfect note, and I folded it up neatly. I put it inside my little backpack. I got inside my little school bus. Of course, books in front of my raging erection, which you could hang a towel off of. And I uh, went to school, and I took this note that I knew was the right note to tell a boy that I liked him. I knew it was the perfect wording. I knew it was something that he would want to hear. And I knew it would crack open his homosexuality, maybe just his bisexuality. And I slipped it into his locker. And I watched it fall, and I thought, ha, work is done. So if you can imagine, I'm in a new home, and there's these beer cans. There's Coors Light cans all over the house. And all you see is dip, spit, like dip spit. This is disgusting brown shit all over the top of the cans because sometimes she would miss and sometimes it would kind of spill over. And it was just gross. And she had them strewn all over the house on the back of the sofa, leaning up against the wall in the kitchen. And then she started to get a little bit louder in the house. And she also started taking my mother away from her friends, saying, you can't hang out with this one and you can't hang out with that one. So over the next month, I started seeing my mother start being stripped apart from who I thought she was before. Or maybe it just was she was looking for love so hard that she would have given up anything to have it. So we didn't have a phone in our house, which is odd because everybody has a phone in their house. And I always wondered, well, maybe we're just waiting for the phone company to come and install it at 15. What do you know? And so I'd look over the house and I'd say, hey, mom, you know, when are we going to get a phone? Oh, we have one. You just can't use it. Karen doesn't want you to use it. That's kind of strange. Why doesn't she want me to use it? Well, she doesn't want you calling your chink father, is what she says. So that was actually the first time I actually heard the word chink. I didn't understand what it was until Karen had walked into the house. But for dinner, I would ask for rice. I grew up with rice twice a day. And I would say, hey, you know, can we have some rice today? And she goes, I don't want any of that chink food. And so this began what I knew was going to be the next portion of my teen years was dealing with this woman and also having my mother not protecting me at the same time because my mother never spoke up. So one of these days I was looking around the house. Everybody was gone. I knew this phone existed somewhere in the house. They had always locked the door. Now, this was the other funny part. We had a three-bedroom. I was living on the first floor, and they were both sleeping in the same bed. I said, hey, Mom, are you a lesbian? She says, no, I'm not a lesbian. That's against God. God would never. Christians are not lesbians. I said, okay, Mom, you know, it's okay if you are. I'm just asking you a question. You can be open with me. No, I'm not. I'm not. That's a sin. 
So I was in history or social studies. I'll call the teacher, I'll change the gender, Mrs. Wilson. And she hated me because I told her one day history is stupid and I would rather be in choir. And and then she just kind of glared at me and said we never really got along. And as I'm sitting there on the speaker came this voice, Mr. Brian, Mr. Brian, Philip Sankey's office, please. And I knew. I knew it was about the note. There's always been in my whole life the sense of my downfall. So I walked out, and of course, everyone's like, ooh, ooh. I got into the hallway. I get inside the principal's office, and Philip Sankey, which is his real name, and if you're listening to this, Philip Sankey, you were very kind that day, and I'm sorry for what happened next. He had a giant overbite. It was enormous. His bottom lip disappeared over his teeth, and he had in his hand my note. And he said, Mr. Bryan, and I said, Principal Sankey. He's like, did you write this note to Jeff? And just then there was a... And Philip Sankey said, come in, and it was my mother. Now, my mother, hmm, how to describe her? She's one part Joan Crawford, one part Florence Henderson, one part Hulk Hogan with a mixed curious cocktail of beer and Prozac and, you know, widely inappropriate. She had a huge ass that she hated, used to pull things over it to hide it. She was a tortured, malevolent, strange, glorious, spectacularly abusive individual who I adored beyond all reason. And so when she walked in, I never knew what was going to happen whenever she walked in any room. I had no idea. So she sat down. And so it proceeded. And Principal Sankey said, so, Mrs. Bryan, you know why we've called you in here today? She's like, uh-huh, yeah. You know, I had better things to do than being here. I mean, I was trying to make a bunt cake. Do you know how hard it is to make a bunt cake? So what is this about? She was always very, you know, annoyed. And she was mentally ill, so she had no filter. And he handed the note to her. And she looked at it. And she read it. And he said, now, you know we have to do something about this. And she said, why? He's like, what do you mean why? She's like, why do we have to do something about this? And what he was referring to, of course, was the fact that the note said this. Jeff, I know where you live. If you don't have sex with Mike Bryan, I will hurt you. Signed. Mr. X. So, well, that's interesting because you guys are sleeping in the same bedroom. How how is that? Uh, how is that possible? It's a little strange that you're sleeping in the same bed too. It's not like there's two beds up there. I'm not. It's a sin. Okay, fine. So one of these days, I was looking for. <laughs> I made it a, a. That was my goal for the day was to find this phone. It existed somewhere. So I'm looking in the extra bedroom. I'm looking underneath the sink. I'm looking in all of the drawers. I'm looking everywhere. I'm just tossing the house. And I've got about an hour to find something because I just want to find the phone at this point. And I run upstairs, and the door is locked to the bedroom. I'm like, oh, okay, challenge, new challenge. I'm breaking into this bitch, right? So I go down, and I don't remember how I did it, but somehow I jimmied it, and I opened up the door, and I've never seen the bedroom before. I had been there for about two or three months at this time, but I'd never seen the bedroom before. I wasn't allowed to go up on the second floor. 
And so I get in there, and I'm looking around. I'm opening up the cabinets in the bathroom. Nothing. I can't find this phone anywhere. So I'm like, oh, you know what? If I was going to hide something, I hide stuff under my bed. So I go over to their bed, and I, I lift up the bed skirt, and I look under, and I just see this huge toolbox under there. It was like something out of the 1950s. It was metal and heavy, and it looks like something you can see the construction workers walking with. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Why is there a toolbox underneath the bed? So, like any other curious 15-year-old would do, I climb underneath it and I drag this massive heavy thing out and I open up the lock and I flip back the lid and the first thing I see is a strap-on dildo. Wow, Mom, I thought you weren't a lesbian, was what I thought. So I'm looking at this, I said, I, I don't want to touch any of this, but you can just see toys all over the place. And in that instance, it wasn't so much the shock of seeing a strap-on dildo or any of the other toys that were in there. It was really, why would my mother not tell me the truth? And I started noticing the lies that she was telling herself and other people to cover up the life that she wanted. My mother said, what do you mean? How do you know he wrote it? Philip Sankey, he just, his eyes bugged up. He goes, what do you mean? We, we student, students saw him do this. And she said, well, he didn't sign his name on it. He was aghast. He had no idea. So he goes, wait a minute. So, so, so you're saying that even though we had eyewitnesses, but the fact that your son didn't sign his name says to you that he didn't write this note. She's like, you know what? If you don't have proof that he signed it, I'm not going to say he wrote it. Let's go. We have better things to do. So she grabbed me. We left. We got in the car. And on the way over, I couldn't get my head around the fact that she wasn't mad at me. I thought she must be mad at me. We rode in silence, and as we pulled up to the house, she said to me, you know what, creepy kid, I, I got to tell you something. I don't understand you sometimes, but, you know, just make sure you never sign your name to anything. And by the way, there's something I know. So we go into the house, and she goes into her bedroom, which was pink and white and filled with these strange dolls. And she reached into her linen drawer, and she pulled out numerous, numerous drafts of the letter. She goes, I found these in your bedroom. I know you're, what you're doing. I know, what the, I, I know why you're doing this, you know. And I said, why am I doing it? She said, well, you know what happened to me as a child. And then she proceeded to tell me, which this is probably already long enough and strange enough to where I might not want to go to this place but she proceeded to tell me how she was, as a child, sexually molested by her, ready for this, still can't quite believe this, dentist, how she was sexually molested by her mother's secret lovers, and how she always thought sex was a disgusting, amoral, messy, unpleasant, and necessary thing to give children to the world. And she said this, such as you, to me. So I close the lid. I slide it perfectly back in place. I close the door, make sure I lock it, and I go downstairs. And I still didn't find the phone. But what I was left with was the stories and the lies that my mother continued to tell. And how can I show up as a 15-year-old to have her be honest with me? Because all I want to do is be honest with her and have that relationship with her. 
And so I asked her later, it became my secret. Holding on to that toolbox became my secret. I know about you, but how much do you really know about me? And so it was a way for me to keep kind of that, that I, I know about you. In a, in a way, it gave me a little bit of power. And it was really, at that time, the only power that I felt that I had. And at the same time, I asked myself, how can I repair the relationship with my mother so that she can be open with me? It makes sense you'd be fucked up with sex, but this, this is not the way to do things. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you one more time, and then we're done with this. And this was the way it went numerous times in my childhood. You gay? I felt the pit in my stomach. It's like a flash of this hot poker. And I said, no, 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 not at all. This is, I'm just curious. That was, the, that was the phrase that we used. Curious. No, I was just curious. She was like, you sure about this? Because this is a weird way to be curious. Mr. X? What the fuck? Mr. X? Who the hell signs Mr. Good thing you didn't sign your name. Make sure you don't ever sign your name to these things. Mr. X? Really? I don't know, creepy kid. It's very strange. You're a strange child. Do you know this? I said, I know. She's like, well, you need to get ready and you need to get dressed because you and Erica are going to junior prom. And, you know, if you want this thing to not get out all over school, then you and your girlfriend need to put on a good, like, you know, time together, have fun, go out with Erica and enjoy yourself. So I agreed with her and went to school the next day. And I saw Jeff. And he was standing outside the school when I walked in. And he looked at me and I looked at him. He said, why'd you write it? I said, I don't know. He's like, you know, it's really weird. You freaked out my whole family. wanted to call the police. I said, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it. I just, I like you. You like me, he said. I like you. And this is how you show it. Weird, right? He stepped towards me and he said, you know, and I wanted to be your friend. I really did. I like you, Mike. You're funny. You're really funny. But now, you freak me out. I don't want anything to do with you. Just stay away from me, okay? See ya. Then he walked away. And that was the last time I've seen him. And I've never, ever forgotten about him. <laughs> <laughs> You're giving me this look, Michael. So everybody just got finished, you know, talking about it. And Michael's sitting across the table from me with this kind of, now he's got a cocked head and this half smile. His eyes are a little big and bright, and he's, I can see he's extremely inquisitive. Mm. So how did you feel when you saw the dildo? Do you remember how you felt? Because, because that's a shocking thing. I already knew that she was a lesbian, so finding the evidence really wasn't— finding like, evidence. a dildo at that age, did, it have any, did you have any visceral reaction to that? No, because you're 15. Here's the thing about Oklahoma that you need to understand. Whenever you're religiously oppressed— People find other avenues to find things. So to find, you know, porn at a young age is not a big deal. To hear about people swinging and doing all sorts of crazy stuff whenever the doors are closed is not a big deal. So I, I, when I saw it, it was like, wow, I've never seen one in real life. It was almost like watching an was animal it, attraction it, at a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> was it a different color or was it just like a, uh, was it a Caucasian or? Flesh tone with a black belt strap area. Oh, how sensible. That yeah, it was. It was. I yeah. mean, I I wish they had gone probably a little bit more colorful. But no, in that <laughs> moment, it was really just like, hey, mom, you know, I've asked you several times and you have, you asked me to tell you everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Where are you on the subject? You know, the God stuff, that fascinates me. So talking about Christianity, Christians, what have you, right? Because I think, you know, I know a lot of pretty hot Christians, meaning spiritual Christians, and, you know, hot too. And uh, I think God's pretty hot. I think talk about God and kindness and stuff is kind of gives me a chubby, so I'm into all that. So so in terms of the, the context, though, of, of that, how did that inform you? And by the way, I have to just give you some kudos. The detail about the spit cup with the side— that the the, the the ah I know that thing so that people know what that is so you mean chew she chewed right mm-hmm. Do it, so tell people what chew is because some people might know because I have some family in Texas it's chewing tobacco which means, uh, so when I say dip it's chewing tobacco so it. you take a little pinch of this wet tobacco and you tuck it in the inside of your lip and they always have this like little bold sometimes you used to see it in baseball all the time yeah but as soon as the the spit starts to accumulate in the mouth what they'll do is they'll spit it out either onto the ground but for her 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 receptacle of choice was a Coors Light can. Now, why do people do that? Because, again, I know this sounds funny because, again, I have family from the South, so this is, like, not a big deal to me. But a lot of people have never experienced or understand the purpose of, of, of people doing that. Like, what's the enjoyment? I don't I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and, and I, I'm a little different because I'm very adverse to it because of that, you know, Because the connotation of where it comes from? Yeah, absolutely. I never knew what it did for her. Uh-huh. I just know at a certain point I wished it would have brought it out her face. That's really, yeah. yeah. So what do you think that did to you in terms of your relationship with your mother, in terms of relationship to your sexuality? Because that's a pretty strong thing to have experienced as a child. Like, how do you think that informed you as a person now? I don't think it really did anything in terms of the sexuality piece, but what it did inform me on is the struggle that she was dealing with. Who? And so so I always saw my mother as this exalted, if she could walk into a room, right, or anytime she walked into a room, there was a light and fan just instantly came on. That's what I thought of my mother. She was just the Wonder Woman, powerful, strong, knew everything, just the rock. I mean, she was taller than my dad, too, so she just— overtook the space. I was like, oh my God, I always want to be like her. And that's where you get your physicality, right? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're very strong. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. You're be- very, you're very, what is it? Goddess. I say Amazonian just because I, a lot of the women I'm close with are, are women who are very formidable, you know, very powerful. So you have your, you, so you got that power from that physical power from her. Absolutely. Yeah. Either that or the idea that I had in my head. Right. Yeah. So it was really all that I wanted to be. And so, yes, absolutely. And so that's where I had held my mother the whole time when the divorce happened and I moved in with them. I found the toolbox. I found all these different— Did the divorce happen, then you found the toolbox? The divorce happened. My mother moved out with Karen, and then I moved in with them. So what did you think about all that with your mother and father together? They divorce. Then your mother's with a woman, and then she's a woman you don't like. Did you feel displaced as a child? It's very interesting. So— I didn't feel displaced. There was a part of me that was happy that they got divorced, and we can talk about the story behind that. Um, I'm sure we'll cover it in another episode, but I was happy they got divorced. They fought a lot, so I was happy to be out of that. The fact that my mother was a lesbian did not bother me whatsoever. It, you, you poor thing. They were fighting when you were, what, like 12 and 13? My as, as, as long as I can remember. You were just a little girl. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I was, oh, absolutely. Oh, it it definitely informed a lot of things. But, you know, my mother's fall from grace, that's really where, what I say is my mother's fall from grace was around that time. That's when I discovered that she was a human dealing with struggles on her own to say that I'm in bed with a woman. I've got a toolbox underneath my bed. And then what comes out of her mouth is I'm a Christian and that's a sin. I could see the battle 
that she was having. And so it really made her earthbound as opposed to a goddess herself. Well, that's why I pick into the the religious part because she felt when you say fall from grace and, you know, in faith, grace is such a beautiful word that I think we've lost touch with. Absolutely. So So what do you mean by fall from grace? I always exalted her, right? She always knew so that. So far from grace from your perspective of From her my as, perspective, yes. Go. This yeah. has nothing to do with actually, you know, God or anything. That's fr- fall from grace in my perspective. You know, I really, that was the first time that I had seen manipulation. No, that's not true either. It's not really manipulation, but the lies and also the, just the straight up lies and, and how she was, disconnected from her truth. What do you mean the straight up lies? Well, when I say, hey, mom, are you a lesbian? And she says, no, I'm not. Because she couldn't face that because why? I don't know. I don't know why she couldn't face it. Do you think God it. thought less of her if she were gay? I think she thought that. Okay. She absolutely thought that. She went to, she was very, very, she was a woman that would not go to the grocery store unless she had a full set of makeup on and dressed to the nines. This was my mother. And so appearance was extremely important to her. If you had said anything out of line, well, that wasn't godlike. So that was really what she would say. That is what she would say. Okay. So what did that teach you as a young girl? So if you were around a woman who said that's not godlike, then all your actions had to be in accordance with what would be godlike, correct? That's what she would expect, but I always did the opposite. Because of that, correct? Because of that. That's so right. I would take a look at that and I say, wow, your life is really restricted. Why would I want to? <laughs> Why would I want to attach myself to a life like that? Now, where did that cognitive process come from? That's a phenomenal thing to be able to detach and observe like that and, and think like that. Did you always feel like that was something that you had to you? I was extremely observant of other people's mistakes. Oh, that's fascinating. So, When were you aware that that started? At a very young age. And I, I, I think, again, I mean, that's I think that's trauma also. Whenever you see that something is very wrong. My brother was always a witness to things also. So I can see in his reaction, however, I was feeling was actually on par Mm. with reality as opposed to, it's like being a test. It's like giving a hypothesis, right? If I do this and here's control and here's the test and then this one changes and the variables and blah, 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 blah. It was the same idea. My brother was in the control with me, right? The chaos was going on the outside. And so I can look at his reaction and say, okay, I'm having the same reaction. So this is not normal. You know, that's how you survived, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's how you didn't get emotionally overwhelmed because you were able to detach. So how has that been since then processing with those emotions? Because they're going to, they demand to be felt at some point. Oh, they were felt. And and, I mean, they're still felt to this day. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this past weekend, I did a three or four hour interview for somebody who's writing a book and she asked me to recount those years. Mm. It comes back. The thing is, it feels like a distant memory at this point. It's there, and I know the story, but it's almost as if I was watching a movie, something you watched 10 years ago, and you can remember the scenes, and you can remember how you felt, but nothing is exactly detailed like it was when it was happening. Well, sure, but but in, over the weekend when you spoke to the person about this, what came to you that still is residual that you're looking to make some peace with? That's such an interesting question. Because there's always something there. Like, where are you haunted still from that? that you'd like to let that go of finally, once and for all? I think for my mother, the one piece that I look at is she is in denial of all of it. I would like for just once for her to say, yes, this happened, and yes, I apologize. 
that's what comes up for me. Have you forgiven yourself, honey? Oh, I've forgiven myself. I'm actually, when I look back on those years and even talking about it now and speaking to you and saying, wow, that's really, that's very intuitive or very, you know, smart of you to to bring that out. I see how I've used that concept over and over again. I'm unbelievably proud of myself, like unbelievably proud of myself. So I look at that. I'm like, wow, that is fantastic that I have that gift at this moment. And also, when I recount those times, I think to myself in the present day, my mother still will not apologize for that. And so that's the piece that I really work through, most of all. You know she can't, right? She can't. It's like speaking to an emotional paraplegic. Is it like not just about apologizing, but like recognizing reality that it happened? Has she ever recognized that any of that happened? No, she hasn't. So anytime that anything in the past is brought up, she said, so Karen recently died a year ago. And I'll, we'll talk about that story later too. But I wanted to know how she died. I wanted to know because I wanted to know that it was a long, horrible, terrible, awful death. Because that's all I had ever, ever, ever wished for this woman. Um, and she says, you know, she was a really good person. You know she was a good person, right? You get that. Like, she she suffered enough. She was a good person. You know this is why you're hell-bent on authenticity, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know that that, because your mother, absolutely. And she's going to come face-to-face with it at some point. That you absolutely have to find out the truth underneath things, and this is why. That that horrible thing that you had to undergo is the reason you're gifted. Absolutely. That's where your your gift came from. The peace really for me, and Ian, that was perfect. The peace for me is really understanding that that day may never come, just like you said. And the way that I look at her, and I'll go back to this, but I look at her as an emotional paraplegic. So let's say my mother got hit by a car. She couldn't use her limbs anymore, and she's in the hospital. And I'm going into the hospital bed saying, but I need you to walk with me. She's not going to be able to walk with me. She's just not. But that's not going to stop me from visiting her in the hospital, right? Is that for you? That's for me Mm -hmm. to put closure to the fact that she may never be that person, right? She's an emotional paraplegic. I cannot ask her to meet me where I'm at, and there's no way that I'm going to go to the depths to meet her. So where does the closure come where you accept the pain of that? Don't let it take you over, but also help you create who you are now. Because I look at those moments and I say to myself, holy shit, this is what I gained, right? I I learned authenticity is key because when you're hiding behind a mask and lying to people, it's not only a detriment to yourself, but it's a detriment to the other people in the world at large around you. And so it doesn't really help anybody. So there's that piece, right? But also the idea that I am still walking upright after all of those years of trauma, I can, any moment I'm having a stressful day, the shit's hitting the fan, I can always look back at it and say, hey, I survived that shit. This is nothing. And it's understandable when you fall down sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm so at ease with myself falling down. Mm Mm-hmm. I've seen people fall down left and right, and the idea that, just like any good Hallmark card, that they get back up and they go at it again, that's where I just gain so much respect for them. It's that gap, though. It's that gap that I'm really interested in. 
I mean, especially with your life, it's the falling down or the metaphorical, sometimes if it was literal dying and then the get back, you know, getting back up again. It's that shift. It's that how long is the gap between dying and getting back up again? What gets us back up again? What gets you back up again? So what gets me back up again is when I think about it at the end of the day, right? And this is that deathbed moment because I have a lot of, I envision my deathbed Mm -hmm. a lot. I think that's a good thing to do. My father says it's very morbid. Hey, it works for me. Thanks, Dad. But really, Walk me through your deathbed moment. So my deathbed moment is when I'm faced with anything, whether it be an embarrassment, shame, any crazy thought where I don't feel like I can accomplish something or even get out of bed, when I'm in that gap between the falling down and the getting back up, I can sit and I can say to myself, if I was on my deathbed, what the fuck would I be doing right now? And does this any does any of this actually matter? Does that failure matter? Does the shame matter? That's why death is so great in life. People are running away from it. But it's so great. Like you read those stories about terminally ill kids and what they say. And which is, by the way, eat more ice cream and read more. And what people who say on their deathbed what they regret, they wish what they had done. It's fascinating how we don't listen to those things and do those things and get caught up unless we were someone who came from the shared past that we came from. But what is it that, because emotionally, when you're from that place of death to rebirth, what is it that causes you to hearken back to that list of things to remember to keep you going? Because in that emotion, that's hopeless. It's difficult. You, you feel like there's no point. How do you find the hope in those moments? How do you remind yourself besides little stickies everywhere and all that sort of stuff? How do you do it? So there's really only three words that gets me out of that. And at the end of the day, actually, maybe it's four. It, well, maybe it's five. And whatever, the phrase is, <laughs> <laughs> it's all empty and meaningless. That's really what, that's what gets me up and going. It's all empty and meaningless. Well, now, elaborate on that, because a lot of people, when they hear that, will not find hope in that. They'll find despair. No, they will not. And I actually, whenever I talk about this, a lot of people will get up in arms and say, what are you talking about? Life is meaningful. It's only meaningful because you're applying the meaning to it. Now, so t- tell me where you got that The from. idea is, now, that's, this is old philosophical thinking of, you Buddhism. know, the, the yeah. existentialism, existentialism, nihilism. So uh, believe me, there, there is such a thing and look it up, nihilistic existentialism. I can barely even say it, but really what it's about is. That's pretty good. If you think about it from, let's say aliens came to the planet, right? Who says they haven't? Right. And they're looking at New York City. All they see because they're thinking, they have, God, it smells like pee. Right. They're going, those, <laughs> those people are nuts, right? But really, they, they, they're hovering above New York City, and all they see because they have no meaning to anything is a bunch of people running here, there, wherever, buildings moving, cranes going, people just doing whatever they do. They have no idea what you're doing. It's empty and meaningless. But I can apply, this person needs to get to work, and they're in a rush. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I say empty and meaningless, it means my fear is really empty and meaningless at the end of the day on my deathbed. It's empty and meaningless because the fear is there. Yes. What are you going to do with it? Where's the fear come from? Well, it depends on the situation. It could be fear of, you know, whatever. It could be fear of not being enough, fear of depends on the situation. Yeah. I think what what episode we have to go into some stories about ego. Yeah, definitely. Because I don't think people understand ego. And I think that it's a slippery little little eel. But I think what you're talking about is the ego will insert needing, seeing, verification. But what you're talking about is stripping it down to what matters in the moment. And what's fascinating is the 
feeling of excitement, hope, forward movement rises out of surrendering to the hopelessness. Well, that's the choice. That's a curious thing. Right? So the idea, and this is where the nihilism comes in, that's right. is annihilating that it's it's even meaningful. Right. Like even saying empty and meaningless is empty and meaningless in itself, right? So the idea of stripping all of that away. So now that you have a blank canvas, what do you want to paint? And that's where you apply the meaning. Well, I want to put red here. So I can apply whatever meaning I want to that. Well, this person cut me off in the in the car. Well, fuck you. Why would you cut me off? Okay, nihilism, empty and meaningless. Existentialism. Well, you know what? Maybe that person is really on their way to the hospital to go meet their dying father. Because it's never personal. It's never personal. <laughs> I mean, it's you really can choose bad. it to be if that's how you want to live your life, and that's yeah. perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm all about choice. But why not apply a meaning that actually works for you? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's really, and I wonder if that's something like what your mother had done with you. What what did you really think whenever, <laughs> whenever she sat in the office and said, "Well, how do you know he wrote that letter?" Like, what was going on in your mind? She loved to be conspiratorial. She loved it. She loved uh, the fact that uh, most people are running on autopilot. And you know, there's this great new show on FX called Legion. And I couldn't remember why I kept wanting to see it again. So I watched it again last night before we talked today. And the show essentially says that mentally ill people actually aren't mentally ill. They're actually gifted. And the voices they're hearing are actually superpowers. And I thought, that's why I like this show so much. So my mother, you know, she couldn't stand uh, facade. She couldn't stand chitter-chatter. She couldn't stand without saying, get into the meat potatoes of it, she used to say. So she really liked to get to the down and dirty answer. And I find I'm incredibly impatient with societal's necessary buffers. And, you know, when I work with people, I can see the falseness and I know it's a shield to protect them. And so like you, she gave me that gift, which I used to drive me crazy. But now it's just I accept that most people can't expose themselves that openly. It's ended my relationship being like this. It's cause certain people to be a little <laughs> like, wow, you're a lot. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so my mother, she was, she liked to go there. So do you find that that works for you being, it reminds me, this, the superpower is really having x-ray eyes, right? And mm-hmm. so I know that we've talked before about you fighting not to be your mother, Right, that she's got that one... It's the bitterness, the resentment as I get older. It's that stuff. Yeah, she was always bitter and resentful that she never got to where she wanted to get. You are part of your mother in that respect, where she was a genius at seeing people Mm -hmm. and wanting to strip away the facade. And I find you do that. Uh, that's just the way you live your life. Okay, so here's the thing. A lot of this positivity is talking, a lot of stuff that we do in here, everyone talks about you can just make a choice. You don't have to be like that. Who you really are doesn't look back, all that stuff. There is the thing I feel in me. I feel it within me. And people that have experienced things that I've experienced, there is a thing in me that still to this day tries to pull me under. It is there, and I feel it. Now, the reason I'm so adamant about this work and the reason I have to do it is because it gives me a reason to keep moving forward. That I understand, but what I'm saying is that that, that piece that you have now, is there— What piece? The piece where you can—you have those x-ray eyes, yeah. like your mother, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Going back where to that. I can that, sense things. It's gotten, it's gotten weirder lately, too. 
But there's a brilliance in that, right? Because you don't understand what your brain is processing. You actually can't even grasp what your brain is processing. I don't think think it's my brain. It's not my brain. I don't think it's my brain. That's what I'm saying. It's something else, and I don't know what it is. Do you need to know? Um, No, my dad would probably want to know because we used to talk about quantum physics. But (laughs) no, because he was a freak. But no, but uh, I wonder what the point of it is sometimes, you know, because when I meet with people, I can kind of sense right away what's really going on with them. I know what they're actually thinking before they think it sometimes. So, and I try not to play that hand because it, it doesn't, people don't like that. And at the same time, I can see your mother being manipulative, right? So is that something, when when you told that, the first thing that I thought of whenever she said, well, you know, how do you know he wrote that? She knew that she had him by the balls at that moment. She knew. I mean, how how could he possibly prove it? And she it was, was she was horribly smart and didn't know she was smart. Just like I didn't realize I was intelligent until a few years ago. Right. And so I wonder if there was anything. What else did you get out of that? Because to me, it's it feels very manipulative. You're like, oh well, I can kind of get away with things by if I skew it. Just holding something over my head, you know, shame, disgust when she pulled the drafts out of the drawer she was disgusted by it she thought it was just gross you know and i saw jeff is beautiful i saw him as <laughs> this, is a, this is adonis you know and it was disgusting to her what's strange though is why, why do i physically threaten to hurt him that's weird that i would do that as a kid so what do you think that was well i equate sex with violence my mother had a sexually violent past. I had a sexually violent past. You know, I had a sexual relationship with a 22-year-old guy when I was 12, which, you know, if, that, if there's one thing that I talk about when I talk about it that people really are uncomfortable with, it's that and the fact that I wanted it and that I liked it. Mm-hmm. When I was writing my book, that was the one thing the editor's like, you keep taking that out. And I'm like, what are people going to think of me? And she's like, at this point, are you really concerned? And yeah. So it was not only you being gay and being found out that way, but also the masochistic nature that you also enjoyed, which also there are, let's talk about BDSM for a little bit, right? There are certain levels of violence that people, I hate saying violence because violence sounds so strong, but certain levels of masochism that people do enjoy. I've never. Am I? Never liked I pain am I? In it, you never liked the pain in it, as I said. No, but but now that I'm remembering something. Uh, hmm. uh, <laughs> I was a dom for a while, so there was that. But I was always the one being the dom. Okay. So when I was a sex worker, I used to dominate men. Okay. Were you always a top? Oh God, no! In my relationship, I was always the bottom. He would, you know, never. I was always the bottom, and and when I started to become more of who I was, I realized, screw that. I, I like to be sort of the the butch gay guy now who can also flip-flop. So, okay. So that was really my question. You know, you were always the bottom, but did you enjoy being the bottom? Uh, I got kind of tired of it sometimes. Okay. I got tired of taking hot baths from my butthole. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's only, there's only so much my anus can take, frankly. So you really like, I mean, so what you're saying now is now you like to flip. Whenever, whenever whatever you choose to do. You I want a relationship it. with one guy where the relationship is very deep and then we both top, bottom, sideways, upside down, you know, hang shingling together naked, fix a fix a roof, uh, go out shopping. Uh, I don't know. The whole thing. I'm trying to figure this out now. This is a whole bit of thing in my therapy, which is, you know, 
what kind of man am I? What kind of gay man am I? Mm-hmm. You know, I used to think in birdcage that I was Nathan Lane, and I'm absolutely shocked to say I'm actually Robin Williams. That I would actually date, I think, a Nathan Lane. Wow, this is you know how amazing this conversation is. Mm. We went from our mothers and notes. <laughs> well, of course, we go from mothers and to, strap-ons to strap-ons to, to BDSM, to Dom, BDSM to, and being a to top Dom and bottom writing sexually threatening letters to boys. Well, of course we would. Hey, so we know there was a lot of information in this last episode. So if you'd like to reach out to us, we're at stripthepodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to leave us a voicemail about what's going on in your life, 201-685-0828. Welcome to Stripped.